Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I chat with our writers in the larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. Today's guest is David Greenberg, who is a professor of history at Rutgers. He and I chat about his essay in issue two of Liberties entitled Naming Names, which is about the recent spate of renaming public spaces and prominent buildings, tearing down monuments and putting new ones up. Um, That was brought on after the George Floyd protests, but really he he explains that this has been going on for quite some time, sort of traces the history a little bit. And he also talks about his concerns with the way that these decisions are made and suggestions that he has for more clear-headed ways of thinking about this subject. Hi, David Greenberg. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Um, David has an essay in the second issue of Liberties called Naming Names, which is about um, the craze of renaming public spaces and buildings um, that I think it's been going on for a, a little while, but definitely has become um, really heated uh, over the past year, probably starting after the George Floyd marches last summer. Um, so David, could you just talk a little bit about, about the essay? Yeah, I, I'd be glad to. And first, let me say thanks for having me on the podcast. Um and if listeners, if there are listeners who aren't also subscribers, and even if they are, Liberties is just so great. <laughs> it's I just want people to know that. I mean, both issues now, it's like, you know, these are just fantastic uh, collections of contemporary essays, wide-ranging, so smart, and the kind of stuff you just can't read elsewhere because they're you know, they're not overlong, but they're lengthy, they're substantive, they're thoughtful anyway. So I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, I, I had thought about this issue for a long time. I'd, I'd written something, I think sort of the first wave of in, like intense wave of renaming controversies came about five or six years ago. Uh, and I wrote a piece in Politico in 2015 that was trying to get a handle on some of it. There were debates about Woodrow Wilson at Princeton and uh, sort of a lot of the presidents in particular, which was kind of my in as uh, a historian of the presidency, among other things. Um, But over the years after writing that, you know, not short piece, but, you know, shorter than this one, uh, I remained sort of unsatisfied and certainly... Uh, the public uh, craze only intensified and uh, accelerated without, it seems to me, two important things. One, there was very little discussion of history, even though many of the people being nominated for removal, having their names removed from a school or a bridge or what have you, were historical figures. But you know, we would we would learn one fact about them that would be presumed uh, uh, disqualifying. Um, so part of it was the problem of ignorance of history, uh, but the other problem was that there was no real clear sense of criteria. Uh, it, there was a kind of opportunistic catch as catch can way that these decisions were proceeding, and some very admirable figure with some flaws might be excoriated and 
have a statue torn down, whereas some horrendous person, <laughs> you know, kind of goes unnoticed um, and remains in place. There started to be certain commissions or working groups that either a mayor will convene or a university president will convene. And these, I think, are a little more promising because they try to uh, articulate and enumerate certain principles and guidelines so that this sort of question can be approached in a thoughtful and consistent manner. Do you find that these questions, what when these issues are raised, they're all sort of raised in the same spirit? Um, I mean, I guess what, I'm, what I mean by that is I feel like there's, there's like the purists version of this argument, which is just like burn it all down. Um, and you kind of go into that in your essay. It's like nobody is, by certain standards, nobody's ever going to be good enough. Um, and then I think there's like a more charitable version of this argument um, that probably I struggle with more. Um, have you noticed like sort of tonal differences in, in the way that these questions get raised? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I I opened the essay actually by talking about uh, the renaming of Sixth Avenue as Avenue of the Americas right after World War II, which never really took, of course. You know, if you uh, ask someone, you know, uh, which way to Avenue of the Americas, it's a sure mark. You're not from New York City. Um and I go through actually a whole range of renamings of streets and universities and so on that have been done over the years for all kinds of reasons. Some, um, you know, very legitimate, some rather mercurial or, you know, based on a sort of passing uh, uh, notion. Um, and, and, and so people, I think, come to this question from a lot of different perspectives. And that's sort of part of the problem that uh, it, it all gets jumbled up. Um, people with very strong political agendas, some people much more with an interest in kind of a civic comedy, you know, the idea being, well, uh, Columbus is important to Italian Americans, so it's important to retain his name. And so-and-so is important to this group. It's important to... So there's, you know, people have different kinds of agendas that they bring to the task. And that dictates, I think, different rhetorical postures. Um, you know, and then there's there was Donald Trump, who, you know, one of the great ironies of this, in, in the Charlottesville press conference, post-Charlottesville 2017, the same one where he was excoriated for... Uh, implying that some kind of moral equivalence between uh, the protesters and counter-protesters, although his comments are actually, well, they're all over the place, but they're, they're more complex than I think people realize. But one thing he said in there was, well, these people were coming to defend Robert E. Lee, and those people, you know, not the neo-Nazis, are, are good people, uh, very fine people. And the reporter said, well, he was a slaveholder. And Trump says, well, what about George Washington? What about Thomas Jefferson? Where does it stop? And the irony is Trump's logic is sort of shared by the fanatical left, 
which also is not content just to take down Robert E. Lee, but wants to take down Washington and Jefferson. There was recently a protest in Chicago. To, they wanted to rename a school, I think, had been is named after Jefferson, and they want to name it after Obama. But now Obama is in bad odor among some people because he deported people, which I think, truthfully, you know, any president has to do to some extent. Um, and so Obama was persona non grata. So there really is a kind of uh, fanatical logic there that leads some of these people into alignment with Donald Trump, just on the on the opposite uh, conclusion. Um, so, so yeah, the political the political rhetoric, the political tone. Um, Obviously, it's a necessary spur to action and can be good to force the question, but it, it's not helpful in thinking about these things dispassionately. What is a, what is an example of like when when you think it would actually be appropriate? I mean, in this climate, to change the name of a place. I mean, I think that there, are the um, reductio ad absurdum in the essay is very strong, and the Obama example isn't in here because. Um, it hadn't happened yet, but, but Gandhi right. in here. Um, right. <laughs> uh, which, Gandhi, Frederick Douglass. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And it's also, and the other, the other thing that you make very clear is that there are certain places that you would expect to say, like I went to Penn, Benjamin Franklin's name is all over Penn campus. Um, and no one bats an eye about it because it's not a particularly political place. Um, but Woodrow Wilson at Princeton has been an issue for a long time. And it's sort of like, well, why is this so inconsistent? Um, how can we possibly be fair-minded and even-handed about this when like, there's just the, the hypocrisy is going to be blatant and pointed out because there's no standard um, that is universally applied and that makes sense. But is there, is there like was there an instance in the past I guess in the past six years or the past year where you were like wow I really don't know what the right thing is here? Oh, in a lot of cases I am unsure uh, about what the right decision uh, should be. Um, you know, I mean, I went to Yale as an undergraduate. Uh, the decision on renaming Calhoun College, named after John Calhoun. You know, I think there were legitimate arguments on both sides of that question. Um, you know, clearly uh, a major American figure who uh, deserves a certain amount of respect as a great senator, a great orator, one of the great compromisers uh, of this sort of this sort of triumvirate with Clay and Webster. Uh, on the other hand. He represented a lot of values, including this unstinting defense of, of slavery and, and states' rights, you know, specifically states' rights to enslave, that I think all decent people today find repugnant. Um, and what is the best way of coping with that? Do we rename it? Well, that's what they chose to do. I think it's a defensible choice. But I think you could also have an argument that uh, you keep the name, recognize that when this name was chosen uh, in the early decades of the 20th century, um, society took a very different view of these things. And then you add rather than subtract, you add plaques with information, you have you know, educational materials 
Perhaps you add some kind of um, counter, uh, tr- you know, tribute to uh, enslaved Americans or uh, an abolitionist figure. There are ways of of doing it that would add to our knowledge, so that the encounter with Calhoun College would be educational, wouldn't make people feel ashamed or angry, but would make them feel even good about having. Uh, that we've we've transcended that past, at least to the extent that we have as society. So, you know, that, that's a decision I think could have gone either way. What I admired about it is that it was done thoughtfully. There was a, a committee appointed. They had historians and, 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 you know, other relevant experts. It was deliberative. Uh, you know, ca- other cases were studied. Uh, there was a whole process that was set up to do it in a way that um, would be fair, thoughtful. Perhaps there is no single right or wrong answer as to what the outcome should be, but it made it very hard to, to criticize the outcome. Could you just give like a short summary of the of the Yale iteration and the Princeton iteration, and just like what the differences were between these two instances? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was was going to get at. So, you know, Yale had initially, uh, Peter Salovey, the president, said, you know, this is going to be our year of reckoning with uh, Calhoun. When did the complaints about Calhoun arise and and what were they? Let me just back up a little bit. Right. Well, they had been there for many, many years. Um, I mean, Calhoun's politics as a defender of uh, the institution of slavery and elite political leader in articulating uh, the um, theories behind uh, what was called nullification, you know, the, basically the state's rights to nullify federal laws, uh, the, the essentially putting states' rights ahead of federal laws, which is rarely how we see um federal power anymore um, and, and, and was rationalized primarily by Southerners to, to protect their own um, right, I put that in quotes, to, to have slaves without the federal government's having any uh, say-so or interference if, if there were federal efforts to curtail that. So, this this has been well known about Calhoun. It's it, it people uh, even when I was in college certainly knew took the measure of the man and didn't like him. Um, some perhaps were unhappy to have his name on their college. Others found ways of living with it. And you know, could you just say what what it means? For, for a place to be like a Yale college? And can you give like, what are the other examples of colleges? These are places where people live, right? That's what it is. Yeah, these are residential colleges. So yeah, the term college can be uh, a little confusing. College within a college. Yale uh, used to have 12, I, I think it's now 14. So all undergraduates are assigned to one of these. It's where your dorm is, you have a dining hall. Uh, it's sort of an administrative unit and it, it gives you an opportunity to live uh, in a smaller group setting than, you know, if you're just thrown onto a campus of 5,000 people and get to know whoever you get to know. You, you stay with these people for four years 
uh, and, and so on. You know, I was in a, a college named for Bishop Barclay, uh, the philosopher. Uh, many of the colleges are named after past Yale presidents, many of whom were um, ministers, uh, Timothy Dwight, Jonathan Edwards. People will know Jonathan Edwards' name, of course. Um, uh, in trying to think of sort of, I mean, so, some of the others I'm probably not even sure uh, I know um, exactly who they're named after. Um, there's a Pearson, there's a Davenport. Um, I'm not sure I know, I, I can tell you that much about these particular namesakes. Some of them are, you know, famous in New Haven, um, you know, famous in the world of Yale, but, but no longer outside it. Um, so, uh, you know, and then recently uh, they built two new colleges and this was sort of funny. Um, one was named after Holly Murray, which is certainly a deserving choice, but one no doubt chosen with uh, an eye on the fact that this was a woman who was black, a fighter for civil rights and a lesbian to boot. Uh, so check, there check, was, check. Uh, right, checking certain boxes on the identity politics. But, you know, uh, joking aside, I think a, a fully uh, deserving person uh, to be honored and somebody who has sort of until recently been somewhat historically neglected. There have been a couple of recent biographies of her. She's kind of now getting more well-recognized, worked with Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and others. Um and then they named one after Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Yale person, but who the donor really, really, really liked. <laughs> and it was sort of quite candid, almost embarrassingly candid, when Peter Salovey admitted this to the New York Times that, well, you know, it's true, Franklin really doesn't have much to do with Yale, but the guy who gave us all this money kind of insisted, <laughs> um, not the way probably we should be making such decisions. But probably the way a lot of these decisions do get made. Oh, yeah. And I think, I mean, this is sort of a separate point. I'm not sure I make this in my essay. The more we strike the names of presidents and explorers and uh, other, you know, eminences from our past because like all figures in the past, like all figures, they were flawed, many of them regarding race or gender or, or these issues that are now so important to us that, uh, you know, society is looking at in a different way because we have a more inclusive society. So as we strike those people, who's it going to be named after? Donors. I mean, this has already obviously been a phenomenon in much of the world and in, you know, the arts, who's, who's the museums and, and symphonies and so on. But more and more, it's going to be the donors who, who get the naming rights. And is that a better system than honoring, you know, people like Theodore Roosevelt, warts and all? You know, I, I, I tend to think not. Um, now, at least this guy didn't name it after himself. At least he picked Ben Franklin, he could have, sometimes people give money and, you know, some of the Harvard colleges, which are the same as Yale's houses, um, are named after the donors themselves. It's like, here's a lot of money to help you build this new college. And then it's named after 
the person. And that's, you know, that's a, 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 a familiar way of doing it. Although perhaps one, um, you know, we, we admire uh, less. Uh, but anyway, just going to go back to sort of the Yale versus Princeton approach. So, so Yale sort of does this fly-by-night approach where Salovey declares he's going to have a reckoning with John Calhoun only to leave him in place. And then the next year forms a very thoughtful, deliberative committee that gets rid of him. What Princeton does is the complete opposite. They're under pressure to remove Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson's name. And Wilson was a uh, professor at Princeton, was president of Princeton, made it into the world-class university that it is, probably more than any president in its history, was governor of New Jersey, of course, as well as one of our major presidents. Wilson is coming under all this pressure for his racism, particularly in segregating the federal uh, government uh, departments. Um, and... Princeton has a very deliberative, thoughtful process with input from all over, decides, I think correctly, to keep his name, but do a lot to bring more attention to the uglier parts of his uh, life and, and, and legacy. Then, a few years later, after George Floyd, without consulting anyone practically, the president just does a complete way. He's like, okay, forget it. <laughs> you know, I put all this work into thinking this through in a thoughtful, measured way. Black students were involved, white students, black alumni, white alumni, historian. You know, the, the, the initial go had the proper procedures. And then in a moment of panic, he realizes it didn't buy him the political relief that he hoped for, so he does a complete 180. That, to my mind, is the wrong way to go, both in terms of process and in terms of outcome. Both of these examples are, you know, easily within the elite land of the country. So I wonder, um, I mean, it just so starkly, and I guess a lot of this conversation is happening in, in elite land, which is like a different planet um, than the rest of the country. But I guess, does it, does it make a difference? Like we expect, it's not surprising to us that Yale students and Princeton students are, are angry because the people on the, on the buildings and where they're attending school are um, not pure enough for them. But is it, does it make a real difference in the lives of, you know, young black Americans um, when they're walking down the streets and the streets are named after people who had slaves um, and, you know, I think a street name is a good, is a good example because how do you have any space for context if it's just a name of a street? You give the good point that we can contextualize these things, um, put plaques up, um, use these opportunities for, to, to make them learning experiences. Um, but what about like for, for the spaces where that's, that's really difficult to do? Well, I think it sort of cuts both ways. I mean, it, it is true that uh, you're not going to have a plaque on every uh, street corner and saying this street was named for so-and-so and he owned slaves or he, you know, trafficked in, in, in this or that. Um, but at the same time, it's almost like, um, you know, when, when it's just the name of a street, uh, out of millions of streets in America, it becomes 
sort of um, like uh, wallpaper. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's not really noticeable. You know, one of the arguments that some people make that the Supreme Court has upheld for allowing under God uh, in the Pledge of Allegiance or on the money uh, is that, well, it, it's, it's so kind of anodyne. Nobody's really taking this seriously as like an endorsement of, of state endorsement of religion. And, and in a way, it's sort of the same thing. If it's just a street name, it's also pretty easy to walk on by. Now, look, everybody's going to react differently. Some people may have very strong feelings when they encounter the name of someone they know to be a slave owner. Um, and I, I don't want to, you know, gainsay or, or uh, deny people's legitimate feelings of uh, anger or um, dismay at the kind of toleration that even the more enlightened parts of society used to express toward barbaric racist practices. But, you know, I also sort of question whether every encounter with a street sign brings pain or, or offense. I mean, you know, we, I'm Jewish. We had a Ford as a, when I was a kid, a, a, a used Ford uh, LTD station wagon. Henry Ford is probably the greatest anti-Semite America has ever produced. Um, I never felt like we owned a Ford like this. I never felt anger or shame. It was a Ford. I mean, you could say we should rename the Ford Motor Company. I mean, Henry Ford was truly as despicable a human being as any of these people were talking about. You know, certainly worse than, you know, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, if we're going to try ranking them. Um should we rename the Ford Foundation? You know, I mean, you, you, the logic of some of this would say yes, because you could say if any, not just any Jew, but if anyone who is upset by vicious anti-Semitism, Jew or Gentile, encounters the Ford Foundation, it's going to be upsetting. Or you could say, yeah, well, or I just think of it as a Ford Foundation or a Ford LTD, and I don't really use that as the occasion to reflect on, on Henry Ford's anti-Semitism and the Dearborn Independent and how he published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and all of that. That, that. that I think about when I read a history book or I engage in other kinds of conversation. I think it's possible to encounter the George Washington Bridge and not, not be you know upset by George Washington's Slaveholding. I mean, you know, again, I, I don't want to speak for black people or uh, people other than myself as to what their personal reactions are. But I just think that we I don't think anybody really would want to uphold as the criterion the fact that some people get upset sometimes when thinking about certain historical figures. I also think the argument that you make in the essay, which I find incredibly persuasive, is a really important one, which is like you don't want to be in a position where you're erasing every part of your national history that you don't find tasteful. Um, it's if you if you want to correct certain things in the culture, you have to know what the things are that you're correcting. Um, and actually, 
if you're offended when you see the street name or let's use the Ford, let's use the Ford company. Cause I actually, I have this feeling. I mean, part of, in the back of my mind, I do think, yeah, that guy, he didn't like, he didn't like my people. Um, and that's an important thing for me to know. It's not the only thing I think of, but it certainly is. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it, yeah. And, and this, like I was struggling with this question a lot over the summer, just like, yeah, yeah. Some people will say, well, and I think this is true. We're not erasing history. These are acts of civic commemoration. Now it's a little different. Ford is a private company, but still it's, it's, it has a certain public uh, place. Uh, So they're acts of civic commemoration. So the history will still be there in the history books. We're not suggesting that people, um, expunge the history. And I think that's, you know, a fair, uh, rejoinder. Um, uh, but I think the problem comes in that there's no real limiting principle and all of our history is bound up with certain, um, forms of moral ugliness, political ugliness, when it relates particularly to race, but also to gender and the status of women and, and to a a number of other issues we could think about. So it it becomes very hard to um, articulate what's the the principle behind taking off Woodrow Wilson and not Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt interned Japanese Americans uh, on you know suspicion uh, that they would be disloyal to America simply because of their uh, ancestry, um, that's a pretty horrible thing. Now, in general, FDR retains a certain glory and and uh, stature that Wilson's uh, segregation you know has led him to be downgraded more pervasively, but. But I don't think that really, you know, helps us. So I, I, I do think the quest to remove uh, these names doesn't have a, a sort of logical uh, endpoint, and, and and I think that's uh, that's one reason why it needs to be done with a certain humility. Well, one of the another one of the solutions that you offer in the essay is that you know, the reason why we remember a person is significant. Um, and you give examples of this. So if somebody, if somebody isn't being honored for having had slaves, they're honored in spite of having had slaves. Um, and I also thought that that was persuasive. So, but you also point out that the reason that like the, the thing that a person is best known for changes over time, um, and could be an occasion for, Right. Right. So if we want to talk about Confederate monuments, you know, clearly the reason we remember uh, Robert E. Lee or the reason we have Fort Bragg named for Braxton Bragg or many of the other military installations is because these people were generals in the Confederate Army. Um, That is the reason we know them. you know, a few years ago, David Brooks wrote a column about Robert E. Lee where he was trying to say 
Well, but he was this, you know, wonderful man who loved to tickle his children's feet uh, or loved them to tickle his feet. I forget what it was. But that's not why we remember Robert E. Lee. <laughs> so um, the feet tickling, you know, may be an endearing. But the converse is also true that it is true that at one point in his life, Ben Franklin um, uh, owned slaves. But that's not what we know him for. In fact, he became uh, an abolitionist and he's much better known for that. So, you know, are, is Woodrow Wilson honored because he won World War I and was one of our greatest wartime presidents, was one of our probably three greatest presidents in terms of progressive domestic legislation, along with FDR and LBJ, and because he set up a vision of the world, alas, tragically could not fulfill it, um, of uh, a rules-based order that would bring an end or at least a diminishment of war. You know, he's honored for the latter, as well as at Princeton, he's honored for what he did for the school. He's honored in spite of his uh, racist uh, views and policies. Um, and, and so I do think that distinction is an important one to keep in mind. Now, it's true, as you say, what we remember someone for changes over time. Um, you know, Calhoun, I think, is kind of a good example where once upon a time, the view I was briefly alluding to of the Senate as a great debating chamber and a great place where uh, intersectional strife was resolved through statesmanship, um, that led to a more elevated view of Calhoun. Now, I think the view is that many of those um, compromises were just postponements of an inevitable uh, clash that was necessary to eradicate slavery. And so even Webster and Clay in this regard don't look quite as heroic uh, as they used to. So I do think we have to acknowledge that um, what we consider greatness in a president or uh, any other uh, public figure changes. You know, Andrew Jackson is another one who is now probably best known for uh, his uh, Indian removal policy, which was quite barbaric and and um, uh, you know with horrendous consequences for the tribes of the American uh, Southeast. But in, in other days, he was really known as an emblem of democracy, sort of the one who embodied America's move from being a republic to a democracy, that is, from one in, which was primarily governed by a small cadre of uh, elite land-owning uh, men to one where at least all white men, which was still a limited uh, uh, population, but a much bigger population, which this much wider population could partake in, in, in democracy. That older view of Jackson really, I think, has been eclipsed. I try to convey to my students when I teach you know, how he was seen for so long and why you know, he would rank so high in these surveys of the presidents. But today, that's, that's not in the main what he is known for. 
Have you found in your classes that students in recent years have been less receptive to um, nuanced arguments about the character of um, historic figures? I'm actually encouraged um, by what I see in my students. I mean, I always go in expecting I'm going to get grief for, you know, saying a kind word about Wilson or or Jackson or something. I mean, I say the good and the bad. Uh, I, I don't. My purpose as a teacher and as a historian isn't to make anyone think positively or negatively about any particular individual. Um, and I, I'm I, I I I'm always surprised at how much receptivity there is to the nuanced version. That I find students generally like it. They it, it, they they agree with it. They are capable of seeing it. Um, and that they're sort of surprised that they haven't been taught more of it. Um, and I think this sort of comports with my view. I mean, I certainly don't minimize the depth of the politicization on campus, but I do think it's led by certain vocal activist cadres. You know, it's like Twitter and like the, the, the mass of students who are there to get an education are actually quite capable of understanding nuance and different points of view. They're not absolutists or purists. Uh, they're capable of engaging debates, respecting different opinions. Um, so that, that's always like heartening to see. And I sort of learn this anew each semester because <laughs> somehow I go in thinking, uh oh, I'm going to. I'm going to get grief for this. And, and it's often the contrary. I do think it's one of the most pervasive calumnies in the, the cancel, cancel culture cadre that young people are not thoughtful. And this is like, this is like the hill I will die on. I really think that we get a bad rap because of, because they associate young people with Twitter and, and they think that because it's new. Um, but I actually, I agree with you. I find that People want to be spoken to as if they're rational human beings. Um, they want they don't want to be talked down to, and it's one of the reasons why this spate of renaming and sort of simplifying things. I think it's super powered by what you know what you just described, which is like a very very vocal minority, um, but it's not representative of most people. Um, and so I wonder what you would say about. Given that, and I really think that's true, do you have um, sort of a set, what would you propose to a, to a naming committee for considerations for like who should be, who should be honored? Like knowing full well that somebody somewhere is going to say that person's not pure enough, or maybe that like down the road, history will revise its opinions of um, this, this person. Do you have like a list of people that you think deserve more credit than they've been given? Uh, no, I, I don't. I mean, I've been sort of happy to see um, one of the go-to people, if you're going to rename a school, um, the people, like one of the people on everybody's list now is John Lewis. And I'm writing a biography of John Lewis, so this is good for business. Um, but <laughs> uh, more seriously, you know, it, I, I started writing the biography, well, I mean, Lewis already had something of a saintly aura about him, but 
with his passing last year, you know, he, he ascended into an even higher level of iconhood. And, um, you know, he is somebody who, I don't know, I, I was going to say we can all agree on. But, of course, John Lewis has his detractors. Um, you know, President Trump refused to go to his funeral or even say a nice word about him when he died. And there are a few on the left kind of going back to SNCC days, the rifts in the civil rights movement who felt that Lewis was too much accommodating with power and, you know, insufficiently um, uh, supportive of some of the more militant uh, 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 strategies of Stokely Carmichael and what have you. Um, so there are, there are, he has his critics too, and perhaps there are, and certainly there are fair criticisms to make of John Lewis. Um, I think though, you know, it's something that needs to be done. And I, look, I think there really is a place for communities whose populations are changing to work collectively in thoughtful, conscientious ways to recognize people from groups, uh, from traditions um, who have not been amply recognized. I mean, there's still, you know, thousands of streets in America named after George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, even if a few are renamed, uh, I don't think we're going to see them go away. But there are opportunities to recognize others um, from obscure people to people maybe who were quite prominent in their own day, but who have lapsed into some obscurity. So I'm all for the expansive project of bringing in different constituencies, groups from you know, different cities, communities, a university community, and thinking through who might we honor, um, who might we recognize. Um, and I think that's actually a much better way of forging a spirit of inclusiveness than drawing up lists of people you know, whose names ought to come down, because I think, as it's probably clear by now, I think it's very hard to establish a good logic for that. Not that there shouldn't be some. I think I think some is fine. But it, but right now we're in a moment of a kind of wholesale leveling. Yeah. David, thank you so much for um, for joining me today. I really enjoyed your essay. It really helped me think through something that was I had no idea how to think about this. I didn't, I really didn't. And it gave me sort of a map for how to approach the subject. Um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been able to ask you a whole bunch of questions that I've had since, since reading the essay. So thank you so much. And I look forward to your next essay, um, which I think is coming on down the road. And yeah, well, I'm still, I'm still in the sort of drafting stages, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe for the fall issue. Wonderful. And and I hope you'll be back on the show again soon. Great. Well, it's been my pleasure to talk to you, Celeste, and uh, good, good luck with the show and good luck with the journal. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed that conversation, head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe. You can read David's essay in issue two, um, the red issue, and shortly past issues and current issues will be available for digital subscriptions online. So there is that to look forward to.